Kindred, hi. Um, gosh, it is so good to be with you, as you've heard. This is officially my last week before I take a couple uh, months off, and I'm just so grateful. I'm grateful that you are here tonight, and I'm also grateful um, that I get to share this message with you all. So not to make things super melodramatic, but if you would have asked me, if you said, if you could pick something, knowing you wouldn't get to preach for a little while, what would it be if you could pick anything? And I really do think it would come close to the message out of these Hebrew chapters uh, that we just happened to land on tonight. And I don't think that that's a coincidence. But see, the letter of Hebrews, it's this overall call to remembrance, to remember how uh, magnificent Jesus really is. And so this week in chapters 9 and 10, the writer specifically reminds us of Jesus's grace and his incredible sacrifice. And I'm choosing to believe that part of the reason these chapters landed on my last week is because this is what I need to return to most often, regardless of how many times I think I've heard it or how, how well I think I understand it. Grace is what I need to remember over and over. And every time I do, I find that there is encouragement and hope and transformation waiting there for me. And so ultimately, that is what I hope I leave you all with tonight. So I have always been a rule follower. I like clearly defined do's and don'ts because I'm pretty good at staying within the lines. And I have always been this way. Um, I don't know if it has to do with just being the oldest sibling or if this is just something about my personality that I have uh, never been able to shake. But there are a few stories that I think really capture this about me. So when I was in grade school, uh, my friend Jackie, who lived right next door, she was spending the night. And of course, we stay up way too late. And after my parents have fallen asleep and gone to bed, we get the idea to pull a prank on one of our uh, grouchy older neighbors that lived down the street. And we write this letter as if it was from a secret admirer. And then we snuck out in the middle of the night and left it for him in his door. So we come back, right, and it's like giggles and fun, and then it's time to go to bed. And hours later, I still cannot sleep because I am tortured by what I have just done. And in hindsight, it's this really silly, harmless thing. But to my little third grade brain, this was a grave offense. And this was like one of the most scandalous things I could have ever done. And so I go and wake my mom up in the middle of the night to tell her what I have done and to ask her to walk me across the street because I'm scared of the dark so that I can go get this letter before my neighbor gets to read it and so that I can rip it up really quickly before my mom gets to read it. And I don't think I got in trouble for this because I think my mom just felt bad for me that I was like so burdened by this really not terrible thing that I had done. So being a rule follower, it had some perks. Like I usually got good grades in school and I was pretty well liked by my teachers and my coaches. But as you can imagine, it made making friends a little bit tough in like middle school because I was called a teacher's pet and I was called a suck up and I was called a goody two shoes, right? Which for the record, I was definitely all those things. Like <laughs> I know this about myself now. I was the annoying kid who told on you if you cut in line or if you cheated off me. 
And so I did do that, but I also really wanted to be liked and I wanted to fit in. And so all of this name calling, it really bothered me. And so one day I decided that I was going to try to reclaim this label. That like if all my friends were going to call me a goody two-shoes, well then I was just going to play it up, right? I was going to dress the part and just full send. And so I put my hair in these sponge curlers, which I think some of you, I hope you know what those are. (laughs) And then I wore a pair of old reader glasses that I found in the house. And I put on this blue button-up dress that I thought made me look really proper, And so when I showed up to school the next day, and I obviously looked very different from how I usually looked, and my friends asked me, like, why are you dressed like that? Or why are you so dressed up? Well, then I would respond with, well, this is like how a goody two-shoes would dress, right? And I thought I was maybe throwing it back in their face, and I don't really think it worked. (laughs) I don't think they cared, but I felt very vindicated in that moment. But nevertheless, the point I'm making is that I have always been motivated and driven by rules. I can't even lie to my dentist about how much I do not floss. And so you can then imagine how this might play out as I begin to explore faith in Jesus. And I was fascinated by this idea of a relationship with him, but I found myself much more concerned with what it meant I should do and what I should now no longer do. And I think to some degree, whether you are wired like me or not, when it comes to faith and this relationship with Jesus, trusting in something that we can't physically point to or see or touch, I think rules and behavior, they bring us a certain level of comfort, right? Because we can measure it. It gives us a way of defining this thing that's actually quite mysterious, and sometimes hard to explain. We can then point to things like our church attendance, or our Bible reading, or our giving, or we can point to our choices, like our abstinence, or our sobriety, or our language, as this proof, right, that we are now good with God, that we're in the clear because we're doing enough of the right things. And inevitably, like that bossy little girl I was on the playground, you also begin policing everybody else's ability to do the right things and to keep up with you. And then when we do that for long enough, when we view these rules and behavior and religion as our security, and we measure, right, we think that God's love and acceptance of us is only to the degree that we are able to keep all of his rules, these behaviors become really empty and hollow and eventually meaningless to us. Or we use what is meant to help us experience God, and then we use it to to punish ourselves, or as a way to try to clear our conscience, or as a way to just prop ourselves up right before God to pass whatever test he might give us. So it could be, because this is certainly my tendency, that as we have studied the book of Hebrews, I've come to identify a little more closely with this unique struggle facing our first century audience. And I think whether you care about rules or whether you don't care about them at all, I think we all want assurance, right, of our most important relationships. We want to know where we stand with others. We want to know that we have assurance of their love. And we often try to secure this belonging and this acceptance 
with our behavior. And I think in this way, we can all then empathize, right, with the way that we will see this Jewish audience leaning on the rituals of their past to comfort them, to comfort them in their present moment instead of leaning on the grace of Jesus. And so over the last few months, we've seen how this letter to the Hebrews, it follows this pattern that Jesus is greater than fill in the blank. And the author takes all of these different distractions and these pillars from the Old Testament, holding them up against Jesus to reveal the way that they really don't compare at all. That they're really only glimpses of the best that was yet to come in Jesus. And so we've seen the way that Jesus is greater than angels, the way that he is greater than Jewish heroes like Moses and Abraham, that Jesus is greater than the prophets of the Old Testament, that he's more powerful than the kings of Israel, that he's superior to these high priests who came before him. We see the way Jesus is above all. And so then moving into chapters 9 and 10, the author is going to do the very same thing. He's going to apply the same strategy to covenants. And that can feel like a really big, scary church word. But simply put, a covenant is just an agreement. It's an arrangement, like a contract. And this agreement, it always includes some promises or some vows and then a sign or a symbol that then marks or represents those promises. And so this past weekend, I got to officiate one of my very best friend's weddings. And marriage is a covenant. They stood before a gathering of people. They took vows and they made promises. And then they exchanged rings, right? This symbol, this sign of those promises that they just made to each other. And during this part of the ceremony, I always make sure to mention, right, that the couple will make these promises earnestly. They will have every intention of keeping them and they will mean them wholeheartedly, but they will not be able to keep them perfectly, right? Their vows really aren't for the wedding day when they look their best and they're feeling the most in love, but these promises are for when they don't feel forgiving, when they don't feel sacrificial, when they don't feel loving. And this is the difference between when people make a covenant and when God establishes a covenant, because God can't go back on his word, It's actually impossible. It's outside of his nature to not keep his word. And so we break promises and agreements all the time, right? We make all kinds of promises to other people, to God even, to ourselves, right? We promise that things will be different or that we'll change that or that we'll never do that again or we'll start doing this. And we find ourselves unable, right, to keep them. Despite all of our good intentions, despite all of our strength and willpower, but the faithfulness of God, it differentiates him from us. And we can trace this faithfulness, this keeping of his promises, all the way back to the book of Genesis, where God first made a covenant with Abraham. He promises to be his God He promises to give him a place, a land, a home, and this safety, and that he will establish a family. 
God makes another covenant with Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, after they were freed from slavery in Egypt. So these promises are made, and then these vows, they're always coupled with some kind of sign or symbol. Right? But the Israelites didn't hold up their end of the agreement. And time and time again, we see them give their love and their devotion and their trust to other things, to statues and to made-up gods and to all different kinds of idols. But here's what is important to note in all of this history about covenants, is that while the Israelites did not keep up with their promise, God never abandoned his. Despite their wandering and despite their rejection of him, despite their complaining and, and their disobedience, God doesn't give up on his people. He doesn't walk away from them, but instead he promises a new covenant. He promises Jesus. And this is the kind of God we have, a relentless God, the kind of God that comes after us, that is set on being in relationship, in connection with his creation. And so the author first sets up some of these limits or the shortcomings of the old covenant in the beginning of chapter nine. He writes this, that that first covenant, that first agreement between God and Israel, it had regulations for worship and a place of worship here on earth. And then he goes into this detailed description of the tabernacle, this place that was set apart for the presence of God. And what this holy place would have looked like. And the way it was reserved only for priests. And then it describes the way this most holy place was even further separated by a curtain. And how then the, only the high priest could enter that most holy place. And only once a year. And only after a series of washing rituals and ceremony. And so all of this emphasis right, on these regulations for who could be in God's presence and and who couldn't and when, all of this ritual and sacrifice and this cleansing, right, required to be in connection with God, it's designed to point to a few things, right, about this old covenant, about this old system, is that there was distance and deficiency. There was this distance and deficiency that God remained at a distance, That before Jesus, there was always a degree of separation between God and his people. And not because God was indifferent, not because he was disinterested, but because he was holy. And we sometimes neglect this part of who God is, his character. We sometimes think about or we image God after our own likeness instead of the other way around. And his perfection right, this pure nature, right, this holiness, it, it can't mingle with our fallible and flawed and fallen nature. And so the way the tabernacle was designed and the way Israel was instructed to worship, it communicated distance, that there wasn't full access to God, but his holiness and our uncleanliness, it made it so that we could only come so close to him, But sin had created this divide, and bridging that gap, reconciling that, required payment. There had to be blood, and that sounds gruesome, 
but that's the way it has always been. And so under this old agreement, forgiveness and acceptance, it had to be negotiated over and over through sacrifice, right? The sacrifice of animals. But we come to find that this work was then never done. These sacrifices, it couldn't fully accomplish what we needed them to. The writer puts it this way. For the gifts and sacrifices that the priests offer are not able to cleanse the consciences of the people who bring them. For that old system deals only with food and drink and various cleansing ceremonies, physical regulations that were in effect only until a better system could be established. And so the repetitive nature of these animal sacrifices, it makes a few things clear, right? That they were only able to do so much. They dealt with the externals. But as the author writes, they couldn't cleanse the conscience right, of the people bringing these sacrifices. And so the blood of these animals, it didn't have the power to forgive people, to save them. These sacrifices, it couldn't offer the permanent relief, right, of whatever guilt or shame or condemnation they were carrying. They couldn't provide the kind of absolution that we needed and that we're looking for. They couldn't give us that full assurance right, of our right relationship with God. They couldn't provide peace, right, the peace in our heart to know God and I are okay, right, like I'm accepted. And so no matter how many animals you brought, no matter how often you gave them over, it was clear these animal sacrifices never had the power to rescue us. This also signals to us that we don't have what it takes within ourselves Right, nothing we bring, no amount of good behavior or rule keeping or performance, it can't secure us God's acceptance. Right, but we're perpetually deficient then, all on our own. But this then is the beauty and the power of the cross. Right, that Jesus' sacrifice, his blood would establish this new covenant. And so if the old one, if the old agreement was marked by distance and this deficiency, this new agreement is now intimate and infinite, right? lasting forever. The writer captures this in verse 24. It writes, for Christ did not enter into a holy place made with human hands, which was only a copy of the true one in heaven. He entered into heaven itself to appear now before God on our behalf. And he did not enter heaven to offer himself again and again, like the high priest here on earth, who enters the most holy place year after year with the blood of an animal. If that had been necessary, Christ would have had to die again and again, ever since the world began. But now, once for all time, he has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death, as a sacrifice. And so Jesus offers himself as this payment for the sin and for evil of all time, right, in the world. And he doesn't perpetuate then this kind of stale and impersonal and distant system of animal sacrifice set up under this old way. But he willingly offers himself Right, his own life. And so he makes this new agreement very personal, right? Very intimate. 
We can't distance ourselves from this sacrifice as we consider then. It wasn't, here. he didn't bring a goat or a bull or a dove or some animal, unlike us, but his own body, right, just like ours. That's what was bruised and broken and bled. He is who suffered, right? This sacrifice, it invites us to intimacy with God. Whereas before it was clear, we didn't have this full access, Right? There was always that degree of separation and distance. But now Jesus has made it possible right, to close that gap. With him as our covering, we no longer now have to stand at an arm's distance from God. Right? But Jesus has made it so that we can be flawed and still broken and still imperfect and be fully embraced, right? fully brought in, fully in the presence of God. And these verses also illustrate the way his sacrifice is perfect, meaning it's complete and it is accomplished, right? It is, as the verses put, once and for all. And so unlike the system of the old covenant, our forgiveness and our status, it doesn't have to be renegotiated. It doesn't have to be renewed, right? These goats and these bulls and these animals, they remained dead, right? But Jesus was brought back to life. He still lives. And so this new covenant that we get to live in, it's everlasting. It is not in jeopardy, meaning we are secure. Right? So the blood of Jesus, it is infinitely more powerful right, than any other means of rescue. And it is more powerful to relieve us of that nagging guilt that we might carry on our conscience or that shame. It's more powerful to do that than punishing ourselves or trying to negotiate penance. It is more powerful than anything we could try to use to justify ourselves before God. And so this new covenant, it is good news. It's good news for those of us right, that grasp at love and at worth and at value with our performance with our rule keeping and our moral living, it means we can be relieved of that unbelievable pressure right? to live up to a standard we know is impossible. And then we can be free from that crushing weight of inevitably disappointing God. Right? It means that church and prayer and our Bible reading and sacrificial living, it means that these disciplines or these practices, they're actually places where we get to meet God, where we get to experience his care and his comfort and his presence. We get to just live as people who are deeply loved instead of using these things as a way to prove something to God or earn something from him or manipulate our way into belonging. It's also good news for our community because when we stop holding ourselves to this unattainable standard of perfection, we also stop holding others to that standard. Right? We stop policing other people and their ability to measure up to our own tests of what is good or what is right or what is acceptable. It makes us a safe place Right, to be in process, it makes us a place free of judgment. So what then should our response be right, to this good news? Well, the writer of Hebrews gives us a good start. 
He writes, let us hold tightly then without wavering to the hope that we affirm for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works and let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. See, these verses, what they reveal is that grace is what encourages us. God's faithfulness, right? His commitment to us, his commitment to his word, not our own effort, not our own strength, not our own grit and determination, but the nature of God, that he keeps his promises. This is what we hope in. We let his grace move us forward, It's his grace that assures us, right? He hasn't given up on us and that he won't abandon us. And despite our wandering or our wavering or our weakness, we have a God who comes after us and he provided the perfect sacrifice in Jesus. While we were still distant, while we were still deficient, right? To make up all of that space. And so I believe that this promise of Jesus This promise of his grace, that is what truly encourages people. That's what transforms people. That is what would inspire us to want to live in a way that is different. Grace is what keeps us and holds us and carries us along. When our own intellect, our own reason, even our own endurance, eventually wears down and gives way. And so grace, this reminder that this is who Jesus is and this is what he offers us, right? That God's love for me, it is not determined by my own ability, right? To keep all of the rules, right? But it's already been determined and I am covered by Jesus's faithfulness, his ability to live a perfect life, to then die for me and to be raised back to life. And I hope that that grace is what you walk out of here today with too. So Kindred, will you pray with me? And then Zach is going to lead us through communion. God, thank you for who you are, that you are good. God, that you pursue us, that you come after us. God, that you resolve to love us despite all of the ways that we mess up, that we reject you or ignore you all of the ways that we waver and wander. God, I'm thankful that this is who you are and that because of that, God, you promised us this new covenant, this new agreement that covers us, God, that your acceptance of us, our belonging to you and with you, it is not determined by our own strength, our own ability to do the right things or live the right way. God, but it is determined by the sacrifice of Jesus. And I'm so thankful for that. I pray, God, tonight that we'd find rest in that, that we would find encouragement in that, and ultimately, God, that that would bring us hope. Jesus, we love you and we need you. And I pray these things in your name. Amen.